Welcome to another ABI podcast. I am Bill Rochelle, ABI's Editor-at-Large. For the next few minutes, we're going to be talking with Professor Jack Williams, a professor of law at the Georgia State University College of Law. He is also a principal with Baker Tilly, which has its main office in Chicago, as well as an office in Atlanta. Professor Williams, as we all know, is one of the country's leading experts on bankruptcy law. But what most folks don't know is that Professor Williams is also, for my money at least, the country's leading authority on Indian tribal law and tribal sovereign immunity. And Professor, thank you for coming because that's exactly what we want to jump into in the next few minutes is some very interesting emerging issues of tribal sovereign immunity in a couple of cases bouncing around right now. One of them, the Carpenter case, already argued and awaiting decision in the U.S. Supreme Court, and a recent decision from the Sixth Circuit involving the Greek town uh, casino and related issues. But, Professor, uh, let's begin with the Carpenter case. What was this all about? Bill, first, it's a a pleasure to be here with you and share some thoughts. Uh, The Carpenter case, which was argued at uh, the end of 2018 um, before the Supreme Court, focuses on a a very interesting uh, and uh, highly consequential dispute uh, there among um, the uh, state government, that is the state of Oklahoma, and the Creek Nation um, through um, a defendant uh, who is a member of the uh, uh, Creek Indian tribe in Oklahoma, or the Muscogee tribe, they would call them there, a Muscogee tribe. The, um, uh, in that particular case, the uh, state of Oklahoma prosecuted um, an Indian for a crime um, that was uh, up until that particular point in time perceived to be um, Oklahoma state uh, territory, so there was juris- the jurisdiction was with the state of Oklahoma. But what was interesting in the case is that the uh, um, the uh, in challenging the conviction, the uh, the Creek Indian uh, defendant argued that the crime actually took place in uh, what was the uh, territorial lands of the Creek Nation uh, that had been established in 1866. Well, you know, I thought the boundaries of uh, tribal lands uh, was pretty clear in this country. Yes, it it is uh, clear. There are some areas of dispute, but by and large, it's uh, fairly well established. Is there something different about Oklahoma? Yeah, there is. uh, And Oklahoma and the creation of the state of Oklahoma out of Indian Territory and Oklahoma Territory, um, we didn't see the typical explicit, clear, unequivocal abrogation of treaty rights that established 
um, the territories of the Indian tribes. Um, uh, we just didn't see it like we um, uh, would anticipate seeing it and had seen it historically. So had the creation there, of has there been a treaty with the Creek Nation? We certainly before statehood of Oklahoma. Yes, and that treaty had established the boundaries of the Creek Nation, well established, and the crime took place within those historical boundaries. Oh, well, what happened in the courts when this very creative defense lawyer raised this issue? Well, I think to the surprise of many people, but not those who have studied the sovereignty issue uh, in the context of of Indian law, uh, the Tenth Circuit concluded that the uh, the Creek uh, defendant had a um, a the winning argument that uh, they were not going to imply um, a an abrogation of those territorial rights, uh, and that the creation of the state of Oklahoma without the language that would typically be present in situations like that in the past um, would not support a clear, unequivocal abrogation of the, the territory, and, and therefore um, the uh, Creek Reservation constituted, uh, in essence, Indian country under the, uh, the uh, relevant Title 18 provision regarding crimes. And so that meant, therefore, in the view of the Tenth Circuit, that the state did not have the right to prosecute crime against that Indian? Yeah, the Tenth Circuit's view was that the uh, the, the state, a fair reading is that the, the state of Oklahoma did not have jurisdiction over that Indian and that crime. Well, you know, criminal law is one thing, but does this decision by the Supreme Court, when it comes down, have implications beyond criminal law? Yes, it's could a, you tell us what some of them are? That's a great. It's a great, great question because of the. Um, uh, Indian law, Indian law. When we talk about American Indian law, is not law that's created by Indians. It's created by the federal government. So it's not a law of Indians, but a law about Indians, it, and generally uh, regulates their life. In fact, there are no other citizens of the United States whose life are most more pervasively uh, regulated by the federal government than an Indian, and particularly a reservation Indian. Uh, so um, because of the, the matrix of powers and responsibilities in the context of sovereignty, once we conclude um, that the that Oklahoma doesn't have uh, terror doesn't have jurisdiction, criminal jurisdiction because the 1866 territorial boundaries are still present and they constitute um, uh, uh, Indian country. Um, an Indian land that will also trigger trigger a lot of other protections, such as so, for example, and powers, I should say. So, uh, for example, the ability of of a sovereign like an Indian tribe to regulate um, the um, uh, to regulate economic activity on its land, including well, the extraction of mineral interests. Well, like what, oil what and is gas. This, what? And by the way, uh, how much of the land mass of Oklahoma? Could be affected by this. Decision. Oh, it's it's substantial. I've I've heard. Um, well, it'd be it's north of thirty percent of um, the state of Oklahoma. It could and, be even greater than that. And would I be guessing correctly if I assume that a lot of that has very substantial <laughs> oil and gas holdings? Some of it certainly does, or other minerals. Yeah. Um, uh, absolutely, and of course, there's 
all sorts of other economic activity now that could be regulated and taxed by um, the um, uh, by the Indian tribes. So, uh, some uh, a person who's let's say a barber who's running a a barber shop in Salisaw, Oklahoma, now realize now gets a, a letter that he's to pay his his uh, an, an income tax to the Indian tribe because he's cutting hair on. Uh, in Indian in Indian territory. But what what about the ownership of the land and the mineral rights? Well, the it, that's a, a great question. Title is going to be if 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 the Tenth Circuit opinion is upheld, without any attempt at uh, cabinet uh, to criminal statutes, then um, we will have uh, a serious question regarding um, uh, title, and it will put the government to a test. And that is that um, the, uh, if the if the federal government asserts, and it has sided with the state of Oklahoma on this dispute, but asserts that um, the uh, the state has a paramount title to to that, they would have to do it under the law of conquest, um, which uh, would be an explicit statement that uh, because of military might historically and the presence of military superiority today, um, the state um, uh, can assert jurisdiction. And it would not be consistent with uh, the um, Supreme Court line of precedent regarding uh, tribes as uh, dependent domestic nations who sit in a trust relationship um, with the federal government. Oh, wow. So in other words, it could put the government in a real hot spot looking like a the old conquistadores yes <laughs> taking everything away from uh, the natives um, well could the government assuming uh, Oklahoma wins this when it gets a reversal simply say well look I'm sorry you know it's 100 years we're taking away all this land too bad so sad that's the end of the story uh, in that worst-case scenario from the tribe's point of view, would the tribe have any recourse? Yeah, it would right now. It's real interesting. The Supreme Court has been, in many areas of the law, very creative when it comes to remedies. Beyond simply damages, let's say, to include things like restitution, disgorgement of profits in the context of unjust enrichment, uh, or in certain circumstances, equitable relief, including rescission, specific performance, so on and so forth. But when it comes to Indian tribes and Congress's plenary power, absolute power over the tribe, uh, generally the, um, the Supreme Court has concluded that there are really two limitations, and they're in the, the uh, um, Fifth Amendment. It's a limitation. It's the just compensation uh, limitation. So um, that doesn't prevent the activity from taking place. So the confiscation of tribal property just requires that property interests be uh, that are taken have to be compensated for. And then there is um, due process clause concerns that the tribe has uh, due process rights, but those, that, those rights don't prevent, have never been interpreted to prevent Congress from doing anything under its plenary authority over Indian tribes. Well, what you're describing for me is a situation in which it appears that this decision is only the beginning of a very big mess. Yes. Because whichever way they rule, there is a lot of follow-on litigation. Compensation to the tribe on the one hand, 
if they take it away or <laughs> the tribes getting into the pockets of non-Indians. Right. It, and it really, what makes this such a, a dramatic case, just as you said, Bill, is it really uh, brings, it amplifies a number of the tensions, some rightfully so, a number of the tensions um, when you're dealing with Indian tribes and states and, and the federal government. Um, and you've you identified one of uh, critical importances, uh, and that's to what extent can a tribe exercise its sovereignty, including its court system, its legislative system, its executive system, over non-Indians, even non-Indians within Indian reservations. Well, um, did oh, by the way, Professor, you attended oral argument, which must have been fascinating in the Supreme Court back at the end of the year. Did the justices seem to recognize what the follow-on problems are going to be? And if they did, did any of them suggest how they might want to deal with them? Um, and the answer to that is, is uh, yes and yes. The justices' questions uh, tend to, tended to gravitate more towards the consequences um, and um, the overall confusion that uh, a, a conclusion that the Indian territory is, the, the integrity of the Indian territory will still be recognized uh, would have on not just the state of Oklahoma, but Oklahoma and Indian affairs. Because um, we're looking at, we're, we're looking at um, multiple sovereigns here. And of course, when we talk about Indians, we're not talking about one tribe. We're talking about a whole lot of tribes um, that uh, could benefit from a ruling that would be favorable to the uh, uh, to the tribes. And um, I think this was uh, this line of thought that was present in most of the justices was captured by uh, Justice Breyer when um, uh, my two uh, worlds co collided: Indian law and bankruptcy law. When he uh, asked if if they concluded that um, the structural integrity of the Indian um, land is preserved, notwithstanding the creation of the state of Oklahoma. Well, how did bankruptcy law come up in Justice Breyer's comment? Yeah, so he he said in that context, if we conclude that there that the um, uh, Indian uh, that the the uh, Indian uh, territorial boundaries of the creek were never abrogated by the creation of the state of Oklahoma, could they nonetheless stay um, the effectiveness of that order uh, to allow Congress an opportunity uh, to cure the situation and invoked uh, Marathon Oil versus Northern Pipeline as, as an example of that possibility? You know, Professor, <laughs> uh, uh, a lot of our audience right now was not even born <laughs> when Marathon Pipeline was decided by the Supreme Court. Briefly, what did the court do there when they uh, eradicated the bankruptcy court's jurisdiction? Well, it made my life as a law student studying bankruptcy just a living mess during that particular point in time. Um, we had, with the uh, Bankruptcy Reform Act of 1978, amendments to uh, Title 28 as well that's... Um, uh, vested in the bankruptcy courts this broad view. And ultimately, the Supreme Court in Northern Pipeline is going to conclude that it's too broad for a non-Article III judge to, to have. 
Uh, and so the question then in striking down a bankruptcy court's ability to adjudicate uh, disputes that constitutionally required to be adjudicated by Article III judges, that that somehow dissolved bankruptcy jurisdiction. Um, even in the federal district courts was kind of the concern well, at then the time. How did, they, how did the Supremes deal with it? So the Supremes um, said, look, you've got, we're not talking about the federal district court, we're talking about the bankruptcy court, but um, this is really going to wreak havoc on a system, now we're in the early 80s, in the early to mid 80s, on a system that's been operating for a handful of years, and it's going to affect, you know, 800,000 filers plus. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to conclude that it is unconstitutional, but we're not going to do anything about it just yet. We're going to allow Congress an opportunity, um, notwithstanding our finding it's unconstitutional, um, to um, uh, fix this problem. Uh, and so they, they stayed the effectiveness uh, of uh, their... Um, uh, their decision, and in fact, had to extend it because Congress didn't meet their original deadline. So, tell me this, Professor: Assuming that the uh, Supreme Court pulls the rug out from underneath everybody with their decision, how would they implement the Northern Pipeline notion uh, with respect to these Indian issues? I think what they're going to, what they would do, um, based on uh, the um, uh, at, in late December and early January, there were supplemental briefings that were requested by the Supreme Court on whether Oklahoma would have any role, notwithstanding the fact, any jurisdictional role, notwithstanding the fact that um, we would, the court would recognize that these territorial boundaries were still in full force and effect, uh, suggesting that there may be some dualism associated with certain types of property that otherwise might constitute Indian country, which to me is an indication that they're thinking about um, delaying, like in Northern Pipeline, um, the, uh, the efficacy of the decision uh, and allowing uh, Congress and the state of Oklahoma and the various tribes that otherwise would be affected to negotiate a uh, a, a resolution in a, a de facto treaty. So do you believe that these are problems that Congress does have the power to fix? Yes. Um, uh, uh, under existing Supreme Court <laughs> under, precedent. Under existing Supreme Court precedent. Um, uh, it, it depends on what we mean by fix. Congress can, um, uh, when it comes to the federal government's um, relationship with Indian tribes can do just about anything it wants to do, including terminating the existence of the tribe. What's that? Terminating the existence of the tribe. Say that again? Yes. It can terminate the existence of a tribe. It has done so over 88 times well, uh, historically. So does that, shall we say, undercut the leverage of Indian tribes? Sure. Imagine that your counterparty to a negotiation has the ability at any time you exercise any leverage you might have to exterminate you. <laughs> that, that will affect your negotiations, uh, the posture in which you um, engage in these type of negotiations, and of course what you would be willing to, 
to uh, hold out on in, um, in that type of a situation. Well, my goodness, that doesn't sound terribly much like Indian tribes are indeed sovereign nations if the federal government, by administrative fiat, has the ability to terminate your existence. Now, it, they, they, it is, uh, again, a, a great um, observation. And the Chief Justice Marshall in the old um, uh, Georgia cases pointed out that, that the Indian tribes whose title and sovereignty predates the federal government, uh, the US, United States government, and whose sovereignty is not derivative of the United States government. So it doesn't have rights. It has sovereignty, uh, which is different. It's not a bundle of rights that was created by the federal government, but it has sovereignty. And that, in those situations, uh, and that's in that particular situation, um, the, um, uh, the, the the chief justice said uh, that um, that the federal government, uh, notwithstanding Congress's plenary power, um, uh, the federal government does stand in that trust relationship. So it attempts to to bridge what we would see and what you've just identified as kind of an inherent conflict of interest in the relationship between the tribe and the governments. It doesn't have to be that way, but one could perceive it at least superficially. That's very interesting. So in other words, tribes have sovereignty, but they are somehow or other a ward of the state. Yep. That's that the a, state can terminate when it feels like it. That's exactly the, the case. And so the Chief Justice, Chief Justice Marshall, concludes that, in very famous language, that they're um, dependent domestic governments, essentially. They're dependent domestic sovereigns. So they have their own special category. And the tribes recognize that and embrace that. I don't know of any tribe that wants to be treated like Peru. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't know of any tribe whose government wants to be treated as purely a foreign nation that happens to exist within the boundaries of the United States. That they recognize through the treaty powers um, and the creation of the United States that um, that uh, fiduciary relationship. The concern um, is that, uh, and as we've mentioned it, is that. Over the last couple of de- decades, decades, the Supreme Court has um, continuously chopped away and eroded of that trust relationship uh, and that fiduciary um, uh, matrix, um, and for some of us, in an alarming uh, speed. Yeah. Well, you know that that brings us to the decision this year by the Sixth Circuit in the Greektown case which I guess if you wanted to say had to do with whether or not a tribe had looted a casino it operated and whether the trust bankruptcy trustee for the casino could sue the tribe, thus raising a starkly an issue of tribal sovereign immunity. So tell me, Professor, how did the Sixth Circuit come down on this issue, which implicates Section 106 of the Bankruptcy Code, and it's, I guess it's 106B, is it not? 106A, I think, yeah. Uh, On the the average, dealing with uh, foreign sovereign immunity. Right. So um, I commend to to people who are interested in this, the Sixth Circuit opinion. You have 
a majority opinion. It was a two-to-one split, and now the Sixth Circuit is at odds with the Ninth Circuit. Uh, so we've created a an inter-circuit split on the interpretation of 106A. So it's the majority opinion does a great job of um, laying out the foundation and analysis that would lead to the conclusion that uh, 106 is not a waiver of sovereign immunity for Indian tribes. Why not? It says governmental unit. Isn't a tribe a government? Uh, that, it, that it, uh, again, yet a great question. Yes, a tribe is a government uh, and a separate sovereign, but the focus, it's where you put the emphasis does 106 constitute under Supreme Court precedent a clear and unequivocal waiver of sovereign immunity on behalf of Indian tribes? So, um, so what, 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 is, what is the test again with respect to waiver of immunity for Indian tribes? So the test is that the Congress has to ex- expressly state a, uh, and manifest a clear and unequivocal waiver of sovereign immunity on the part of the tribe. So it's not implied. Um, it's not uh, something that's deduced from the facts or circumstances. Well, let me ask you this. That's the same standard that applies to sovereign immunity for a, you know, Peru, mm-hmm. as you said. But in the instance of foreign countries, the Supreme Court and courts have implied a waiver of immunity under Section 106, for instance. Why are they not equally, or at least why was the Sixth Circuit not equally liberal with respect to tribes? It rests on the special trust relationship that the federal government has with the Indian tribes. So the insistence um, is that um, that although there's no magical incantation or language that's necessary um, to waive tribal sovereign immunity, you have to be able to look at the language, let's say, of a statute um, and uh, clearly and unequivocally conclude that it applies to Indian tribes. And if you look at the, um, the waiver of sovereign immunity under 106A, it sends us to 10127, in essence, the definition of government, governmental unit. And then governmental unit uh, identifies things that would naturally follow from uh, a person's um, interpretation of that phrase. It would surprise no one that in a federal uh, bankruptcy code that uh, the United States is a governmental unit or that the states within the United States are a governmental unit or the subdivisions of a state would be a governmental unit. But it would surprise a lot of people that a natural interpret, if you were to suggest that the natural interpretation would also include Indian tribes in that category, and um, the uh, and 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 that really is kind of um, the the question here. A good rule of thumb is that if you're analyzing a statute uh, where there is a argument or suggestion of abrogation of sovereign immunity, if you have to study it at great length and great detail. Um, and it's not clear, uh, and it's not uh, unequivocal because there are multiple arguments that could be made, that's probably a good indication that because of the trust relationship and the special nature that tribes have um, with the federal government that you don't have that clear uh, abrogation of the sovereignty of the 
of the tribe. Well, one of the striking features of the majority opinion, and it really picked up on what you said just in your last sentence, was that the majority found no case in which a court had found a waiver of tribal immunity where the congressional statute did not mention Indian tribes explicitly. Right, that's true. That's and that, uh, that's you know, that's like the elephant in the room. Yes, I mean, that, if, it's, if it's that's the bottom point. line, that's end of story. Mm-hmm. No, it is a great point. There is no Supreme Court case that has ever concluded that uh, sovereignty um, on behalf of the tribe has been waived without references to Indians and Indian tribes, and there's only one court of appeals opinion that has concluded. Um, otherwise. All the others also follow the Supreme Court view. And that one case is the Ninth Circuit case on 106 that creates the conflict between the the Ninth and the the Sixth Circuit that we're dealing with right now. Well, that is a a biggie. And then the dissenter, at least the way I read it, was a good bit more pragmatic, really looked at the result uh, without... uh, without so much focus on some of the technicality. Which raises for me quite a, a question, Professor, to go back to the Supreme Court. This term in particular, we have seen some unusual alignments among the justices where you find the so-called liberal justices lined up with the conservatives, um, which is making a lot of people crazy, but, you know, uh, that's the way it's going down this year. Did you see any ideological split in the justices in their questioning in the Carp- uh, Carpenter case, or were they lining up based on different ideologies, not political? Uh, uh, it's difficult uh, to tell, um, but what emerged to me is a, a real possibility we're going to see this mix again, um, where it's going to cross the simple view of conservative versus liberal from a political or even a judicial perspective. Because so much of Indian law is about context, it's about history. And um, even those who uh, would embrace a strict constructionist view seem to recognize that in their in um, the questions that they were asking um, in oral argument. Uh, so I don't think it, I, th- I don't think we should be surprised if, for example, um, we see some of the, uh, quote, conservative um, justices uh, forge an alliance with some of the more liberal uh, justices on the Supreme Court. Um, you know, uh, with that said, the real concern among the Indian tribes is that the, the, the concern is that the Supreme Court itself is simply out of touch with uh, Indian tribes and tribal affairs. Um, this term, uh, Justice Gorsuch, is the uh, is the the justice in, in, um, that I'd like to highlight. Um, left the Tenth Circuit to the Supreme Court um, and has hired for the first time a um, an American Indian law clerk. Um, now imagine the Supreme Court is um, reviewing um, cases that involve the very existence of uh, an Indian tribe, and and in many cases, um, an Indian tribe's most valuable resource, its children, under various federal statutes like the Indian Child Welfare Act and things of that nature. Uh, yet, 
how many of those justices have spent time on an Indian tribe or uh, on a reservation, real time? Um, uh, have we ever had a Supreme Court justice who's an Indian? No, we haven't. We've had, um, uh, I think, you can count on uh, less than one hand um, uh, federal judges that are um, American uh, Indians, and uh, it really poses the um, uh, this question to what extent that even if they try to get it right, can they get it right? Because the context is so different. Um, you're looking at um, a, a tribal uh, culture, and remember, uh, under this fiduciary relationship, uh, the importance of understanding what's in the best interest of that tribe until Congress, of course, speaks uh, clearly and unequivocally, and then it can do most anything subject to compensation if it involves the uh, taking of property. Well, i got to tell you, Professor, this is making my head split. I, I guess you've been spending a career on this, but I, I, I can't imagine how complex this is. Well, Professor, I, I thank you very much. I thank our audience for listening. And please tune in again soon for another ABI podcast.